Welcome to JMSACL podcast. I am Mashima Ali co-hosting this session with Dr. Chris Shanard with our guest speakers, Dr. Lindsay Crickpatrick and Dr. Nicholas Menick. Today's podcast focus is on development and validation of pepper spray mass spectrometry method for the rapid quantitation of remdesivir and its active metabolite in human plasma. Welcome everyone. Over to you, Chris. So today we're pleased to welcome Dr. Lindsay Kirkpatrick, Assistant Professor of Clinical Pediatrics, and Dr. Nicholas Manneke, Associate Professor of Chemistry and Chemical Biology and Forensic and Investigative Sciences. Both come to us from Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, IUPUI. Dr. Kirkpatrick received bachelor's degrees in chemistry and Spanish at Ball State University, after which time she did her doctoral studies in Hilka Kentima's lab at Purdue University. She then completed her doctor of osteopathic medicine at Kansas City University of Medicine and Biosciences in 2014, followed by a pediatric residency at James W. Riley Hospital for Children at Indiana University. Dr. Manneke received his Bachelor of Science degree in biochemistry at the University of Evansville, after which time he did his doctoral studies in Graham Cook's lab at Purdue University. He then did doctoral studies and worked as a visiting scholar at Purdue before a position as principal scientist at Quantlon Technologies. Today, Lindsay and Nick will be telling us about their work with paper spray ionization as a supplement to their recently published JMSACL paper entitled Development and Validation of a Paper Spray Mass Spectrometry Method for the Rapid Quantitation of Remdesivir and its Active Metabolite GS441524 in Human Plasma. Nick and Lindsay, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, my pleasure. So I'll go ahead and get started with the questions. Uh, the first one here is I'd like to start off by asking how each of you initially became involved and interested in mass spectrometry research. Uh, I'll start. My instrumental, instrumental analysis class, which I took during my fourth year of college, I, I really liked. We learned about mass spectrometry imaging using MALDI MS. This was back in 2004, I think, relatively new technology. I, I had just gotten done doing a summer research project where I was using you know antibody staining on tissue sections to do immunohistochemistry. I thought that mass spec imaging sounded like a way better way to do that. Now it's people still do antibody staining for imaging now, many years later. So that, that's still a great way to do it. But uh, mass spectrometry imaging and that idea of using mass spec to image tissue sections is what really initially got me excited about mass spectrometry. When I began my PhD at Purdue University in 2005, and there's an interesting fact, Nick and I were actually at Purdue at the same time and graduated around the same time. Um, but when I first uh, showed up at Purdue, I was initially interested in organic synthesis. And initially I looked at organic chemistry groups to join. Um, however, Hilke Kentema, whose research really spans analytical, physical, and organic chemistry really took an interest in, in me and I ended up joining her lab. Um, I'm really grateful that I did because she was an amazing advisor and she really opened my eyes to mass spectrometry as well as, well as like many other facets of chemistry. Um, so not only was I able to do organic synthesis in the form of some very complicated aromatic halogenations, um, but I was also able to work on a number of different mass spectrometers uh, for my reaction kinetics work, including FTICRs, Orbi traps, TSQs, and L. TQs. Um, and I found myself more drawn to mass spectrometry as I moved forward in my research. And I was able really to see from a diagnostic standpoint how powerful it really was. 
Um, I eventually ended up in medical school. I know it's crazy, especially with this pandemic. What was I thinking? Um, but while I was out of you know the research realm for many years in this training, um, I eventually made my way back to mass spec to focus my efforts on better diagnostics to treat infectious diseases, and that's where I find myself today. And you know, still very much interested in it overall. So, Lindsay, uh, let's start off with the most important question. Can you tell us a little bit about how paper spray ionization works? Absolutely. So first of all, I would like to say, you know, paper spray is really attractive as it employs a disposable cost effective cartridge and no sample preparation. So who wouldn't want to quantify drugs directly from crude biofluids and eliminate the headache of sample preparation and complex troubleshooting? And so, um, Essentially, how it works is it's performed by depositing a small amount of crude biofluid, whether this is whole blood, urine, plasma, or some other fluid, onto a pointed paper substrate, which is then secured in front of um, the inlet of an unmodified mass spectrometer. A solvent is then applied to the rear of the paper where it diffuses through the paper substrate and extracts the soluble analyte from the crude biofluid. A high voltage is then applied and an electrospray is induced at the sharp tip of the paper. So either positively charged or negatively charged gas-based ions of the desired analyte are produced and then they enter the mass spec for fragmentation and detection. Um, With the use of an internal standard, we were able to integrate the area under the curve of the analyte ion fragments as well as the internal standard ion fragments. And then we are able to use that peak ratio of the two to normalize and quantify against concentration. So overall, the method gets rid of chromatography instrumentation that is typically needed for separation and requires very little sample preparation overall, which is, you know, in my standpoint, very attractive for a clinical laboratory. So Nick, what are some of the major advantages to paper spray ionization in comparison with the more conventional techniques using in clinical analysis today? There are several things about it that I think make it useful for clinical laboratories. First, there's no no sample preparation that's needed to to analyze a biofluid. A, A blood sample or plasma or saliva, urine, all of these biofluids can be simply pipetted directly onto the paper substrate that's that's used in the paper spray and then analyzed. So there, there's no need for an extraction. And, and so that sort of lack of, uh, of offline bench work is, is a nice advantage. The, the second thing is that there's no chromatographic step. Now, now this is a bit of a double-edged sword because the the real advantage of that is uh, time and, simplic- and simplicity. The the analysis is much faster, and also because the instrumentation is much simpler, there's less downtime and maintenance associated with doing a paper spray analysis than doing an LC analysis. Now, I said it was a double edged sword because you know there's a reason why people do LC mass spec, and that's because the separation provides some benefit in terms of the specificity. So going in. The, the the chemist needs to establish that good specificity can be achieved with either exact mass measurements or tandem mass spectrometry or a combination of those two without chromatography. So the specificity um, has to be adequate w- without the LC. And then the, the third and the last advantage I'll mention is uh, else, uh, paper spray, I think, is is way more amenable to uh, fast walk-up single sample analysis. So I think we could see applications where 
uh, a, a stat sample comes into the lab and gets analyzed very quickly without the need to create a huge batch of samples, um, which, which you often need with LCMS. LCMS is complicated enough that often one has to bash large numbers of samples together to make it feasible. Whereas with paper spray, it's it's quick and easy enough that you can just kind of take one sample and analyze it right away. Yeah, that's really interesting. And a great segue into the next question. Lindsay, what do you see as the most beneficial application or clearest path towards routine implementation of paper spray in a clinical setting? I mean, from my standpoint, I'm sort of biased because I do a lot of drug quantification. I think from a drug quantitation and trace screening standpoint, I think the sky is the limit and probably our most beneficial application right now. Overall, we, along with other groups, have done quite a bit of work to find substrate and solvent combinations that work best for many different hydrophilic and hydrophobic drug classes. So I think implementation into the clinical laboratory is fairly close. Um, And I think it's even more of a possibility as there have been really great strides in automation and development of plug and play technology, particularly into the software of the instrumentation of the instrument, essentially. Um, So I I think it's a a little narrow minded to only consider drug quantitation or screening, though. I think, you know, while it's probably the closest application um, for routine implementation, Um, More and more research is showing its adaptability for use in other applications, such as like lipidomics, metabolomics, and proteomics. And so um, I think from that standpoint, while we might not be as close, I think overall those those applications and, you know, in the coming years will be more prominent. Um, And, you know, I I will kind of defer to Nick. I think he's probably better able to expand a little bit better on those applications than I can. Um, But from my standpoint, I think as a clinician, uh, I would like to I would like to see this routinely implemented into the clinical laboratory for drug quantitation, particularly for antibiotics, immunosuppressants, and other drugs that might require TDM or even pharmacokinetic studies. So, Nick, let's take a step back and talk about the history of paper spray. The Cooks Group at Purdue has been heavily involved in the development of ambient ionization source over the last two decades. Tell us about how you started working with paper spray ionization during grad school. Okay, I'll I'll give you the relatively long version of this history. And to me, it starts with DESI, which is desorption electrospray ionization. That's something that uh, Graham Cooks and colleagues in his group invented around 2004 and published a science paper on that. And that's about the time that I joined the Cooks group. I joined the Cooks group in fall 2004 and started working on DESI as my uh, thesis project. And I worked with uh, imaging applications where we use DESI to image tissue sections and also image like forensic applications. And I also did quite a bit of work with drug quantitation. And towards the end of my PhD, probably around 2008, there began to be a lot of interest in dry blood spots and developing in, in using dry blood spots for sample storage and collection and then analyzing drug concentrations from those dry blood spots. This was an area that uh, GSK, the pharmaceutical company, was a big leader in back then. And so being an analytical chemist working in mass spectrometry, we, we immediately started to think about how can we improve and simplify the workflow around analyzing dry blood spots. We were working with DESI at the time. A lot of the students in the group were working with DESI at the time. And so, of course, we started 
trying to analyze dried blood spots with uh, DESI mass spec. But um, that method doesn't give great sensitivity for analyzing dried blood spots. The reason is uh, DESI, if you're not familiar with it, you, you take a, a spray of charged solvent droplets and shoot it at a surface. And so if you have a sample which is on a surface, it, it works well. But with dried blood spots, a lot of the material that you want to analyze is not on the surface of the paper. It, it's absorbed into the, you know, it's absorbed into the paper fibers. And so the this, the recovery of the drugs just wasn't great. So we were having a meeting one day, uh, brainstorming ideas about how to solve this. And uh, Zhang Yang, who was a professor at Purdue at the time, he's now at Tsinghua University, had the idea of just cutting the paper to a sharp point and doing electrospray directly from the tip. A nice idea. And the astonishing thing is that it, it worked and it worked pretty well right off the bat. And, and so it, it kind of took off from there. I, I didn't do any of the initial work on paper spray because I was finishing up my PhD and I was working on, I was finishing up my thesis at the time on my DESI work. Two other researchers in the lab, He Wang and Jiang Jiang Liu, uh, did the initial experiments on that and published a really nice paper on that that's been cited like, you know, a lot. <laughs> and uh, but I was, you know, pretty keen on it, and I was also pretty keen on the idea of commercializing it, the idea of having a spin-out company that was that that could commercialize the disposable devices and the instrumentation around this, I thought was really interesting. So I, I stayed on at Purdue as a postdoc for about a year and a half, really developing the foundation of the technique, and then joined the spin-out company, uh, Quantion, and was the principal scientist and only, you know, really only employee of that company, uh, trying to get that off the ground. So, Lindsay, your graduate work at Purdue was a little bit different. You focused on gas phase reaction kinetics with mass spectrometry. Were there any takeaway lessons that you learned from those studies that might be relevant to clinical analysis? So this seems like a lifetime ago. <laughs> when you think about it, I actually pulled out my thesis a few days ago and I, was, I couldn't believe that I did that work. I was <laughs> I feel like I've regressed a little bit as a chemist thinking about it. But um, I think, you know, we look at the work that I did looking at the calcomycin class of anti-cancer drugs, what we call a DNA warhead, um, and how it reacts with the components of our DNA backbone from a reaction kinetic standpoint. Um, I think essentially that is pharmacodynamics. And that's, you know, I do a lot of pharmacokinetic, pharmacodynamic work at this point in time and trying to implement um uh, in the future, paper spray mass spec into, into these studies. So from a drug development and pharmacodynamics standpoint, and essentially pharmacodynamics is how the drug affects the body. That's probably like the easiest way to say it. So in terms of, you know, this class of drugs, the calcomycin class, um, we can minimize damage. If we can minimize damage to our own healthy cells and maximize cancer cell death by all, like altering the reaction kinetics with certain functional groups, then we may be able to produce better, less toxic drugs. And so are these type of interaction studies from a drug development standpoint possible with paper spray? I think with the right setup, it is a possibility um, for not only the drug class that I mentioned above, but many other drug classes too. Um, from a drug pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic standpoint, you know, absolutely. Pharmacokinetics in a nutshell is how the body affects the drug. And so drug levels for both 
the drug of interest and its metabolites are frequently needed to assess and understand that. And there is a large push for PKPD modeling and model-informed precision dosing overall, um, because we know that no one person is alike, um, and dosing that works for one person or one population may not necessarily work for another. And this is particularly true in children. So I feel like for paper spray, paper spray may allow clinicians and researchers to obtain these levels rapidly, particularly if there are constraints to other methodologies like HPLC or LC mass spec in their laboratories. But from a drug development standpoint, I definitely think there is a lot of work that can still be done utilizing paper spray and that, that facet of uh, clinical pharmacology overall. Nick, what are some of the most important technical advances in paper spray ionization since its first advent? Areas of research that really get me excited are the work where the material itself, the paper, is modified or changed completely into a different material to improve the sensitivity and the specificity of the analysis, because that's kind of the real strength of, of and the potential in paper spray is not simply to use the paper to hold the sample, which is what it is in its most basic implementation, but rather to use that material to do some interesting chemistry that's going to make the analysis work better. Uh, so you know, a few examples of folks that I think have done some really nice work in this area uh, Abraham Badutwai, who's at Ohio State University, has developed a paper spray immunoassay where he essentially does a, a sandwich immunoassay on the paper. And then for detection, instead of using like an ELISA type scheme, for example, he has an ionic probe that can be cleaved off and then detected by paper spray. So he's using paper spray as like the ELISA, essentially. Another group, Renato Zenobi at ETH, they just recently published a paper in which they modified the paper spray substrate with an aptamer, which is sort of like a an antibody in that it can selectively bind targets. And so they were able to show they could use these aptamers to selectively enrich target molecules from a complex matrix. Yanis uh, Paulson at Waterloo, he developed a a method called blade spray, where instead of using paper, he uses essentially a chromatographic material that can use, for example, reverse phase chemistry to pull hydrophobic molecules out of uh, blood or urine. And so he's shown, you know, really incredible detection limits by using this kind of reverse phase chemistry. And then uh, the last one I'll mention specifically is uh, Boniac Vaz at the Federal University of Goyas in Brazil. They developed a material that was uh, that contained a molecular imprinted polymer. So they could use these molecular imprinted polymers, which are essentially uh, polymers with uh, sort of a template in there to bind and sequester whatever your target molecules are. So again, it's a way of selectively enriching the, the target compounds you care about. So with methods like this, the the sensitivity and the specificity of the analysis can be really improved dramatically without actually making the analysis itself more complicated. It's just a matter of having a, a smarter material in your paper spray device. We've been talking very generally about paper spray and its benefits in clinical analysis. 
But let's switch gears, Lindsay, and talk a little bit more specifically about the paper that you recently published in JMSACL, where you were doing quantitation of remdesivir and its active metabolite. So for those who haven't had the chance to read through the paper fully, can you give us a little synopsis of the project and what were the major findings? Sure. So remdesivir um, or GS5734, they all have these fun number names as well as a nucleoside analog prodrug um, that has antiviral activity against several single-stranded RNA viruses to date that we've been able to find, including SARS-CoV-2 um, and even Ebola. So it's currently one of the few FDA-approved antiviral agents for the treatment of individuals with COVID-19. I mean, we still actually use it in the clinical setting today. It's not one of those drugs that has been phased out. I actually used it a few weeks ago on a patient of mine. So overall, little was known about this drug early on in the pandemic when we started using it and we and when we initially initiated this research um, there's very limited pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic data on this as well as toxicity data in humans and so we we really felt it was imperative to develop methods to quantify remdesivir and its active metabolite GS441524 um, for use not only with the with possibility for use in the COVID-19 pandemic, but also for further studies and future pandemics with single-stranded RNA viruses, um, where it might have activity against those viruses. So essentially, we did a about like a calibration curves and validation for remdesivir and GS441524. Um, and we, we were able to create calibration curves utilizing seven plasma-based calibrants um, of varying concentrations and two isotopic internal standards and validate the method. And so overall, the calibration curves for the two antiviral agents showed really good linearity across the calibration ranges. The coefficient of determinations were 0.99 to 1. Um, our inter and intraday precision for both analytes was less than 11.2% accuracy or percent bias was uh, plus or minus 15%, which is you know, well within the ranges that um, you would expect for the FDA guidelines. Um, we also conducted a stability study, which showed um, that degradation was seen beginning at day seven for our plasma calibrants at uh, four degrees Celsius in room temperature, but they were stable at negative 20 for the course of a 21-day stability study. And we didn't see any degradation for dried plasma spots. And so that's kind of useful if, just thinking from a clinical laboratory standpoint, if you wanted to bank uh, cassettes and keep them in the freezer and use them for your calibration curves that you need in order to conduct your analyses, um, we thought it was important to show that work as well. We didn't find any interference or mass or excuse me, matrix effects or carryover uh, during the validation process, which was important. And overall, we were able to quantify remdesivir and the ranges needed for multi-dose PKPD studies, TDM and toxicity. GS441524, we had a little bit of issues with. I think overall, when you think about the active metabolite, it's it's found relatively in a low concentration in the blood, and we're really unsure um, how much, we know it's, it has some antiviral properties, but really how much of an effect with COVID-19 was that having, we don't know. Do I think there'll be further studies in the future with this particular metabolite? I do. I think uh, particularly with the in vitro studies, I think it, and you know the toxicity associated with remdesivir, I think it's an obvious target for research in terms of an antiviral agent. Um, but I do think you know overall what the study showed is that we needed to we need to improve the sensitivity on that particular um, metabolite. One big strength of this study, and I think you know I want to point this out, is that we did do this on an automated system. This was the thermo 
uh, Fisher Vera Spray um, paper spray sports paper spray source utilizing the Altus TSQ, and so. This was a huge advantage in terms of workflow, um, not only for us, but I think, you know, in terms of clinicians or researchers that want to see it in practice, we were able to conduct the study fairly quickly. Unfortunately, I think one of the big limitations of the study is we were unable to obtain clinical samples. So I do think um, if this is further implemented um, for quantification in the clinical or research laboratory, I definitely think a cross-validation with LCMS might at least a small one might be warranted to be sure um, that our method is both sensitive and specific when compared to really the gold standard for quantification at this point in time. Nick, your group has been working on a number of projects involving ambient ionization. Is there anything else you're working on that has clinical relevance? We have a, a couple other projects that we're, that we're working on one of them is synthetic drug screening. This is utilizing paper spray, but with a little bit of a different twist to it. We developed a paper spray cartridge that includes a little solid phase extraction column in it. And the purpose for doing that is to drive the detection limits lower. We, we want to be able to detect some of these fentanyl analogs down at uh, 0.1 nanogram per mil type levels like carfentanil, some of these really, and uh, some of these really potent synthetic uh, fentanyl molecules, and also some of the synthetic cannabinoids are, are down at these low levels as well. So the research project involved uh, developing the, the device to uh, combine solid phase extraction with paper spray on, on a single device. And then now we're collecting blood samples from Methodists emergency department here in Indianapolis. And we simply collect remnant de-identified blood samples and then use our device to screen them for synthetic drugs. And then we take also de-identified patient information like demographics, uh, what zip code they got picked up, what drugs the, the patient reported taking, and a few other pieces of uh, clinical and demographic information so that we can combine all this together in a database and maybe do some sort of uh, interesting public health type research with that data. And then the, the second project that we're working on that has some clinical significance is protein analysis. Specifically, we're interested in developing a new approach for targeted protein detection as for clinical diagnostic purposes. And so this isn't like a proteomics type problem where we want to be able to measure hundreds of different proteins. Rather, we want to be able to measure a small panel of important proteins with a really simple device. Paper spray can be used to analyze proteins, but generally speaking, dealing if you have a very complicated biological fluid like plasma with a very large number of different proteins spanning a wide range, a paper spray on its own will not give you the, the necessary performance. And so what we're working on as a long-term project, which will take several years, is to uh, develop the technology that we need to uh, pull out particular proteins from a complicated mixture and analyze them by mass spectrometry with a very simple workflow that doesn't require offline immunoprecipitation and separations and these other uh, steps that are normally done for protein analysis. 
So I think it's very clear to our listeners what the advantages are to paper spray and what some of the potential clinical applications are. But Lindsay, could you talk a little bit about what some of the most pressing challenges are that still remain? Um, and what can we do to take this technology to the next step of potentially being implemented in the clinic? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I think the most pressing challenge with paper spray is really the same for any mass spectrometry methodology. Um, I think it's a lack of knowledge and maybe a little fear, as well as reservations about the cost of instrumentation when it comes to implementing into a clinical laboratory or a laboratory, a research laboratory that may not be familiar with the methodology overall. So I think, you know, many clinical laboratories have no experience with mass spectrometry and really do not have champions that can implement them into the workflow, train the techs to utilize the instrument. And I think COVID-19 particularly has made this challenging because we're at a shortage of techs and help within the, the pathology laboratory. Um, and you need expertise to troubleshoot the instrumentation. I think from just the methodologies alone from a sensitivity and specificity standpoint, we're only getting better. So I think a lot of it is logistics at this point in time. While we have come a long way in terms of automation and plug and play technology and implementing it into the computer software, um, there are still all of these barriers that we have to overcome. Um, I think one of the biggest advantages of paper spray is the lack of need of chromatography instrumentation. So from my standpoint, that eliminates one of the big issues that labs may face in terms of expertise for that component, um, as well as troubleshooting and supporting that component. Um, and I think as more people hear about and utilize the automated system and hear and utilize paper spray, then researchers and clinicians alike will see its immense value. We, we've been successful in implementing MALDI-TOF for pathogen identification in a large scale. So I don't think this is a far leap that as long as we're able to make it as easy as possible to use. And I think we're getting better. My hope is that more laboratories will start implementing it into their workflow as, workflow as more methods for drug quantitation of different drug classes are solidified from a specificity and sensitivity standpoint. We're close, I, I do. You know, I can't give a timeline for years. I wanna say five, maybe sooner, um, but I think I think it's coming. And I'm, I'm hoping as people adopt this methodology, they will see its value in the clinical laboratory overall. So we as clinicians can start utilizing this for our patients in a rapid manner. Uh, Nick, would you like to add anything to that? I agree with your assessment that in large part, uh, an attitudinal uh, barrier and logistical barrier. But certainly when I see some of the comp uh, complicated equipment and instrumentation in hospitals like automated clinical analyzers, those instruments are huge, they're expensive, they're very complicated. And so I think if something like that can live in a hospital, then I, I think paper spray mass spec can live in a hospital too. I agree with you. And, you know, I, I think, you know, I want to throw it out there. This Paper spray is not meant to completely replace LC mass spec. There will always be a place for it. There just are certain drug classes that we won't be able to quantify and, you know, get the specificity that we need. Um, so I think overall, I think it's a really great addition to any laboratory, but I, I do think we have to understand and know the limitations as well as the advantages. 
how cost effective it is if one would like to implement in the clinical lab? Comparing the, the cost difference can get a, l- a little complicated. Uh, on the one hand, with, uh, with, so with paper spray, the major cost drivers would be the capital equipment, which for the sake of argument, let's say it's, it's comparable to LCMS. I mean, maybe because the, the, the mass spec is the same. Uh, LC systems are expensive, but the paper spray system, the commercial product might be comparable to an LC now. I, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, and so then the second major cost driver for paper spray would be your dis- the disposable. You have to buy the, the plates. And then for LC, your disposable cost is probably lower because you, you do have, for example, the, uh, the LC column and the solvents. And, and so maybe that all would sort of balance out. And so your, and so then the big difference then is the, the, the time, the hands-on time that's required. And when you look at these things carefully, you know, labor turns out to be a huge fraction of cost associated with these tests something that's not often appreciated. And so that's an area where paper spray can have a big advantage is that the labor required to run it is much lower. I think too, when you consider the costs of amino assays, which are one and done, right? You can't reutilize them. How much does that add up over the years too? I think I haven't seen a cost analysis or, you know, um, uh, from that standpoint, but I think that's also something to consider. And those also have their disadvantages. If you oversaturate the reagents, um, you know, propensity to fail. I think that's something to kind of keep in mind too. And, you know, Nick brought up the cost of a technician. I mean, I think the last time I, I asked our laboratory director what the cost was, it was 50 cents a minute. And so if you think about, and that's only gone up, especially with COVID-19 shortages, inflation, um, if you think about the analysis time and the amount of time that you have to prepare for LC mass spec, paper spray significantly cuts that down um, and is quite cost effective from that standpoint. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, I take this opportunity to thank our guest speakers, Dr. Lindsay, Craig Patrick and Nicholas Menick and my co-host Chris for participating and sharing insights on the development and validation of paper spray mass spectrometry. I hope our listeners enjoyed this session. Keep listening to us only on JMS ACL podcast. Thank you.